That's what it really has come to mean to be an economist um, over the over the course of the centuries is to to have a, a, a serious sort of willingness to defer to uh, the processes of the social order rather than believe you can always outsmart um, and plan everything that's going on around you. It's just not true. And, the, and more often than not, the attempt to do that results in, you know, just disaster. And then that's true, you know, whether you're talking about, you know, prohibition in, in 1920 to 33 or lockdowns in 2020. Welcome to And If Love Remains. I am your host, Mike Levitt, and uh, I am thrilled and excited to have on the show today um, Jeffrey A. Tucker. Um, Mr. Tucker is the editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. He is an author of nine books, um, including Bourbon for Breakfast, one of the greatest titles I think ever, and uh, um, and his latest book, which is uh, Liberty or Lockdown, um, which we'll get into. He's also the editor of The Best of Mises, um, the book The Best of Mises, and and I'm very thrilled to have on um, Mr. Tucker. Thank you so much for, for being on the show today. Listen, it's my pleasure to be here. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it, it's great. Thank you. Well, um, one of the reasons I, I wanted to have you on is, is as I've seen some of your speeches and some of your talks, you, you seem like such a, um, a happy warrior. You seem like such a great guy and such a, you have such a passion um, and love for capitalism and the free market. And I'm curious, where did that come from? How, how did that kind of get instilled in you? And, and, and where did you just fall in love with, with these ideas? I think it's because, you know, when I was, when I was really young, I... You know, people are different, and I just always had this sort of passion for working. I remember the first time that I, I let me think, I was maybe I was nine years old or something like that. I went out with my father, and we were, uh, he had a friend who had a well on a ranch as a water well, and it needed to be repaired. And, and they stuck me down the well because I was really small. I didn't know why I was invited, then I found out why. <laughs> <laughs> Oh, heaven. Yeah. <clears throat> that was my advantage in the division of labor at the time. Um, <laughs> but I remember getting out of the well, repairing the thing, and, and it was a long, hot day, and I was thirsty. But then the man took out, you know, $10 out of his wallet and handed it to me. And I thought, what? So I get to do something for somebody else, and then I get something in return? Like, I hadn't really experienced that, you know, uh, up to that point. Um, because, you know, in school, all you have to do is, you know, do what you're told. And there's no real reward other than, like, an abstraction, like an A or a B or a pass or a fail or something like right. that. Right. But, but you're not actually valuable uh, to, your, to, your, uh, to your teacher as such. You know, you're just in the mode of uh, compliance. You're taking up space and your job is to comply. So within, within this one moment, I just had a revelation that I could be a valuable human being to other people and be rewarded for it. And I just, I always never quite lost uh, my, um, my sense of fascination with that, you know, that he could take out a piece of property or a proxy for property out of his wallet and hand it to me in exchange for which I gave him, you know, my, my time and, and labors to make his well work. And then he could, you know, feed his and water his plants and feed his animals and so on. 
it's just like, okay, because of this one transaction, the world has made a better place. And I don't know. I, I think that was the moment. And, that, and then after that, I couldn't, I couldn't stop working. You know, I was, I was in school, but I always had a job and I cared way more about my jobs than I ever did. Um, the school side, so you know, I, I moved into roofing and then, and then fence building and then finally into a maintenance at a department store cleaning um, uh, toilets and vacuuming, uh, you know, carpets and digging pins out of dressing rooms and waxing the crystal section, which was harrowing for a young man. And, um, Right. And I just loved all the crushing boxes out back, and uh, I just loved the bustly atmosphere of the of the local department store, and and how they served people, and then they got rewarded for it, and then they would turn those rewards into hiring more people so they could serve more people, and just that dynamic of watching it work, it just it all just seemed magical to me, and. Then um, I gradually worked myself up to be a salesperson at that store. And then I, I actually dealt with real customers. And that was interesting because, you know, it turns out not everybody is wonderful. Uh, so I right. discovered <laughs> I discovered how working in a retail environment actually cre uh, creates a new kind of discipline that you have, which is a kind of patience and tolerance. And I began to develop all that. And I don't know, it's just the magic of human interaction on a voluntary basis. Really just, like, obviously I'm reconstructing my past. I don't think I, all this stuff occurred to me at that time. But, but over time, um, you know, I began to get enraptured by it more. And then I became a busboy and then a, then, then a chef. Then I worked for a catering company. And, um, well, and I then think I'm, that's where, I was just starting to interrupt. I just wanted to say, I think that's where, that's where your education really can inform your experiences. Like when you, when you're going through these things, you're right. You, you don't see, you know, you're learning how to deal with a customer, but then as you learn and as you see, you know, it, I, I, I'll speak for myself, you know, when I, when I learn a, a philosophical concept for, for example, and say, Oh, I've already put that into practice in my work environment and right. it does happen. And, and these things yeah. are powerful. That's right. And so you then, then you, you encounter the, the, the theory and it, and it somehow makes sense of, of the intuition you've had about the course of your life. Um, right. Right. So I, I guess, I guess I'm grateful for all those experiences. Now, um, um, part one job I had, well, I eventually became the manager of a men's store and a, and a buyer, which is really scary, you know, going out in, in uh, January to buy the uh, uh, next fall's uh, you know, fashions, you know, that's, right. that's, that's, that's an entrepreneurial Everything. task. Wow. Everything is on the line for that, for that season. Yeah, that's right. And and then that I had a second job, which is uh, I played for a dance band um, as a trombonist. And I really imagined at this point in my life that I would be, um, you know, a, a, a musician. But uh, um, you, one of the things I found in, in the School of Music, which I had already begun to hang around in at the university when I was already in high school because they needed me for their, jazz, their own jazz band, um, I found that they were kind of like not entirely 
happy people. Uh, and one of the reasons they're happy, they're unhappy, is that uh, the musicians, at least at, at that level, uh, never really liked their customer base. They got tired of their customers always demanding to hear Beethoven and Mozart when they really wanted to play, you know, some far-flung, academically approved nonsense. Right. And so they, they, and also they all consider themselves underpaid, so they're always grousing all the time and whinging about their lives. And I don't want to be around grousy, whinging people. I want to be around happy people. So, so when I when I, I, I was trying to figure out what what to major in, I bumped into. Um, you know, the economics department, I just was fascinated by the idea of a science that would account for, you know, the rise and fall of nations, you know, the, the, the existence of wealth or the existence of poverty, you know, the factors and, and, and logic behind, uh, behind, you know, behind, behind work and earning and finance. And it's, it struck me that economics was like summed up everything that really mattered about life. So, so I loved, I loved economics and, and it took me a long time to finally, you know, bump into the theoretical, um, apparatus that has really governed my life. But at least, uh, early on, I, I liked the, even the bad economics. I just liked the topic. Right. I mean, it is such, it is interesting. Um, money and economics is, is one of the subjects that is so intimate to each of our lives. And yet, and yet I think we understand it the least in a, in a real way. It's very strange how people kind of um, otherize economics or sectorize it. They put it over there as something that uh, is separate from society. I mean, I just read an interview with Melinda Gates the other day when she said she was talking about the pandemic and the policies associated with it. She said, you know, nothing about the coronavirus has surprised us, but um, in terms of its spread and, and so on. But, but one thing we never really thought about was the economic implications. Isn't that shocking? Yeah. Yeah. So that's sad. It's, it's funny. And you, you bump into this all the time where people say, well, I don't know anything about economics. I was bored by economics. I didn't like economics. That's, it's not really my area. But, but of course, that's a little bit um, wrong because actually people are talking about and thinking about economics all the time. You know, And it's just a question of whether or not you're doing it in an informed way, uh, in a disciplined way, in a way that's, that's consistent with uh, humane values. Or you're just stumbling through and making things up. And I think a lot of what's happened in the lo this year has really come down to the fact that people just thought the economy was not really in integral to the human life or our normal experiences every day. It's a, you know, the, this, this weird uh, sense of like, we can turn it off, well, then we we'll turn it on when we want to, and we're going to say this is essential, that's not essential. You know, just, just this brutal treatment of the economy as if it's something other than the than than the narrative of of the life that we actually live day to day. Yes. Well, and I, I think I, I I also think um, one of the benefits of being an a, a, um, an economist. I am not one. I am I am a musician. That means so I I can relate mm -hmm. to what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's not true of all musicians. By, by the way, so just so that we're clear, this is this is a, a kind of a, a highbrow academic set. You know, right. Right. I mean, like a lot of musicians love their audiences and, right. and, and get real joy out of playing. But, but when you get into, the, into academic music departments, really, there's a dreariness, you know, that overcomes you. It's interesting. Um, but what, what I was going to say is, is I think one of the benefits of being an economist is it, it allows you to think in a different way. You know, I, I, I've talked to attorneys and they say, you know, being a lawyer allows you to think in a different way and, and that discipline. And, and one of the, the specific things an, an economist has to know and, or has to at least take into account are the unseen things 
that are happening around us. And in other words, it's it, why in a, why wouldn't you seek out an economist about the the the, the factors of what a coronavirus the, the you know a lockdown would would do? I mean, that's the exact person you want to talk to because he's trained in knowing what the unseen consequences could be. Right. Right. I mean, it's yeah, that's what they I mean, the economists are very good at that. They they try to see the counterintuitives, you know, and they understand, as you say, the, you know, the invisible uh, costs, you know, the foregone opportunities, uh, you know, the the opportunity costs, the, uh, the 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 relations between all sectors of economic life, even the ones you can't see, you know, it's a, it's a complicated network. And they, economists, good economists are actually humble. You know, they tend to do, defer to, you know, the, the signaling systems and complexities of the mm-hmm. social order. And that's what, that's what it really has come to mean to be an economist um, over, the, over the course of the centuries is to, to have a, a, a serious sort of willingness to defer to uh, the processes of the social order rather than believe you can always outsmart um, mm. and plan everything that's going on around you. It's just right. not true. And, the, and more often than not, the attempt to do that results in you know, just disaster. And, and that's true you know, whether you're talking about you know, prohibition in, in 1920 to 33 or lockdowns in 2020. Right. Right. And, you know, the, so let, let's talk a little bit about um, what's going on. And, and, and let me put a little little context from, from my perspective. I, I back in 2002, um, there was an actually, I think, a, a pretty good show that that introduced me to the, the um, world of, of Keynes and Hayek. Um, and it was a, a PBS show of all things called Commanding Heights. It mm-hmm. was a I thought it was a pretty, pretty well done um, piece. And, um, and one of the things I, I, I was thinking about this in context of the coronavirus is, is it one of the episodes began with, you know, I think it was a quote by Quint Keynes saying that, uh, you know, a, a, a British person in, in London in 1910 could, you know, uh, sit, sit at his, at his uh, table and, and order all the, the goods of the world and have it delivered to his door. Um, and, you know, and then of course, world war one happens and, and for a century, um, those types of, of, um, services are, or, or, or the world, the world closed, closes down. Let me put it that way. And, and I guess one of my fears and, and, um, I don't know if this is the fallacy of it being right in front of me right now, <laughs> but one of my fears is that, is that this, coronavirus has the potential to be that kind of a um, problem where it shuts the world down for a longer period of time than we can imagine. Um, is that a fear that you have? Well, I think it's a, it's a completely just fear. And and your history here is, is extremely important, uh, which, by the way, I don't think uh, one of the dangers I think that, that every intellectual has is to imagine that there's a kind of a a narrative structured history that that creates an inevitability, like a baked-in patterns of waves, and this happens, then that happens, and so, so that we have no way out of it, you know. And I don't mm. believe that. So I, I think that you know, tomorrow the world could just completely wake up and say this was this was a calamity. But nonetheless, it's very important to learn from this history. So let me just um, build out what you said just then a little bit more. That that nineteen nineteen quote from Keynes came from his economics. Uh, Economics of Peace, I guess, and uh, really a really good book, actually. 
And he was right. So World War One set in motion these sort of dark forces that took over. So, you know, um, it was in that same period that we suddenly had, you know, uh, we, we threw out many aspects of liberalism um, at that point, you know, with anti antitrust laws and um, uh, so, which really amount to a kind of form of industrial planning and income taxes and then central banking. And then in the United States, it was really during that period where, where we really entrenched things like minimum wage laws and then you know segregation to keep races apart and uh, heavy regulation of business and regulation of the medical industry and many other controls over national life and it just really and oh and obviously prohibition itself which was 100 percent right. backed by the scientists i've been doing some work on that this morning i mean it's just amazing the extent to which the scientific elite uh, and all the ivy league universities were completely behind prohibition and they they had all the numbers and the data and the credentials and everything i mean it's like prohibition was a, a no-brainer it was so bad you couldn't even find many intellectuals in america to even oppose the thing so and and so yeah there was a really dark period and then of course the great depression happened and then and we borrowed, you know, FDR borrowed many features of, 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 of planning, industrial planning from Italy under Mussolini. And, you know, the world seemed to be split between fascism and socialism. And, and it was really grim. You know, what was interesting during this period in the 1930s, especially after 1932 with the Smoot-Hawley uh, Tariff Act, that there were some really intelligent um, liberal economists at the time who saw what was happening and realized this is probably going to eventually lead to war. And if we want uh, to build peace and prosperity, we have got to start with making sure that something like this tariff act never happens again. We really need to build a global economy. And they worked all throughout the 1930s. And really by 34, we, we had begun to reverse some of that protectionist impulses and already struck a trade deal with Canada. And so the war interrupted the progress. But after the war, um, the, all these people were in sort of good positions, both in academia and in government, to really uh, forge a new kind of liberal order post-World War II. And you know, lower tariffs, in increase trade, uh, really try to stabilize the world to reduce the possibility of war. Imperfectly, obviously, but actually over 70 years, you can look and see that they really did triumph intellectually. The world became ever more... Um, about trade and integration and peace between people. And, um, you know, you mentioned that, that PBS special, Commanding Heights. And in some ways, that, that show is really wonderful because it represents the triumph of this post-war liberal vision that, which, which won out both theoretically and in practice. So people began to realize, oh, we need to be free in order to be peaceful and prosperous. You know, that was a great moment. And, and, kind of a repudiation of the planning mentality. I think, you know, when that thing came out in the 1980s, we were unaware that we were maybe living in an unusual time. Yes. Um, that was, we were particularly lucky and fortuitous. And then really things began to change after that. And, uh, and it probably began, uh, you know, I would say really at the start of the, the new uh, millennium, you know, with the nine eleven, and then, mm -hmm. and then everything really. I think during nineties, you know, we didn't have any kind of leadership in this country that really appreciated the role of free markets or, or even liberty at all. And then by the time we get to the twenty first century, we have all these 
you know, a series of calamities that between you know 2001 and 2006 really just kind of baked in to our uh, public lives this these presumption of draconian reactions to crises whether they're you know terrorism or pandemics or whatever and i think in retrospect we've we've been on this course for a long time actually i think 15 years we've been traveling down this road and this this year just everything got deployed but it was already in place for the last 15 years and it does seem to signal you know the end of the age of of um of, of liberty in some way um I, I don't want it to but it seems like maybe that's true well it, it is it's it's um it's difficult to not i, I guess to uh to, to not have that kind of perspective for me, it, it seems it is analogous. Um, and I think, um, it, I guess that, that brings us, I think, to your book, Liberty or Lockdown, um, which I think is, I, I don't know how quickly you wrote this book. I don't know what your workflow flows like, but uh, um, it, it's, it's a great from, from what the, I've read bits of it and I, I have really enjoyed it. And, and there's, a part of the introduction that has really kind of echoed in my mind since I read it. And it's this, this simple paragraph um, where you write the people with everything to gain from the lockdowns had nothing to lose. The people who had nothing to gain lost everything. Yeah. Uh, that's basically a summary of this year. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah. That, that, that does, you know, and I've, I've tried to write this, this theme over and over again, kind of because you see it fleshing itself out, you know, the way in which, you know, I don't know, for lack of a better phrase, the ruling class just imagined that they could um, plan their way out of this pandemic, you know, uh, uh, take control of the virus, take control of society, muscle people, tell people how many, how many people that can be around, what schools can open, what schools can close, you know, what surgeries you can get. And without any serious calculus of the cost of lockdown. They didn't even they didn't worry about it. So what it's done is it's massively stratified uh, the social order. And it's never more obvious to me than, you know, when you, you go on social media and people bragging about, you know, I'm, being, I'm doing the right thing for society by staying home. It's like, oh, really? Um, how, how healthy are you? I'm perfectly healthy. How old are you? I'm 28. Um you know, there's the, you're, the, the possibility that you're going to experience something severe outcomes from COVID um, are far less than what you normally experience with, with the flu or by driving or any other risks in life. And, and you think you're doing good for society. Well, who is going to or what is going to bear, bear the burden of this virus? Um, and it's like, well, I don't know. Well, how about the people that are delivering the groceries to your doorstep? You know, right. um, what about the people that are in the meatpacking plants, you know, the, the construction workers that are still working, the hospital workers, you know, everybody out there who's still doing their thing to allow you to luxuriate at home. What they don't understand is that they're recreating a kind of a pre-modern caste system. It's always been the case in the past that societies have assigned to the lower classes and the working classes, the burden of a disease. Uh, herd immunity is a real thing. It's not a, it's not a strategy. It's not a theory. It's just what, how it's, evolution is, treats viruses that once viruses infect uh, mild ones, uh, particularly like, like this, this one, once it has infected enough people and, and it can't find a host anymore, then it goes endemic and be, which is to say manageable and predictable. And we move on with life. And that's sort of the way it always works, but somebody has to get it. 
And in order for that to happen, you can't just run away. So what's happened is the ruling class has decided that it will hide in its castles and its apartments and, you know, with, with their Zoom calls and Netflix while forcing uh, the workers and peasants to, uh, to get the disease. It's so is, right on. Yeah, it's it's undemocratic. It's unequal. It's it's contrary to liberalism and modernity. You know, in the past, in the slaveocracies of the South, you know, we have empirical evidence the slaves experienced a far, far greater degree of uh, disease, and that's because the people, the the lords, and the manors and the slaveholders, in their estates, were always uh, running away from from mm -hmm. the bug when it came along uh, well, annually. I think about the Medici's in Florence building roads above the city to, for them, private roads for them to walk across while everyone oh, else sure. is suffering. I mean, it's what's ironic. And then, and then of course, you know, India, you know, develops an entire social system around this idea that there's some classes that are unclean. And that's why it's very frustrating to, to, to uh, my liberal friends in India. They, they, they want to develop welfare systems, but it's, it's part of, and it's long been a long problem that there's a perception in India, that uh, you should not uh, help the poor. You should not try to lift people out. That it's their job of the unclean to stay unclean and bear the burden of of herd immunity for the rest of society. Uh, that's always that's always been a tendency of pre modern life. Uh, but with modernity, we kind of forged a new kind of social contract that e exists within the framework of the prevalence and reality of infectious diseases, which to say we're not going to assign the burden of disease to people based on class, race, religion, language, and all these other kind of categories. Instead, we're going to use intelligence, figure out who's vulnerable to the disease, uh, protect them, and then let it circulate and let the rest of society uh, become exposed so that we can bolster our, our, our immune systems and live longer, healthier lives. That was a kind of deal we made, um, you know, post-enlightenment. Right. And, and, and America has always complied with this. I mean, you know, George, it's very interesting because uh, smallpox was a huge issue during the American Revolution. It didn't stop anything. You <laughs> right. Know? You know, it is, it, it is uh, shocking to think how, how we have such a, a, um, a bad education on history that we don't understand that that these things have happened before and we've we've dealt them in far better ways and far or far different ways um you know i don't know some may be better some may be worse but what it didn't do is shut down an entire nation you know we had a very early experiment with shutdowns in 1918 with the spanish flu and they were very limited like new york never did anything but there was shutdowns and some some limited quarantines and shutdowns in chicago and san francisco but what public health specialists learned from those is that they didn't solve the the problem and they created new problems aside from the virus and created a tremendous amount of political division. I mean, the anti-mask league of San Francisco was, was riotous and, and, <laughs> and wild. Uh, I would have joined it. Uh, <laughs> but the quarantines, you know, um, so, so what, what happens? It's like psychologically is that people always, uh, if, for, the, for something invisible, 
like 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 a, a bacteria or a, or a virus, something you can't see. You your mind we're we're restless with the idea that we, we can't control it, we can't see it. So what we do is we we assign it we we assign the guilt to other people, you know, and we just assume that people who are not like us have it. And I'm telling you, this has been true all this whole year. It's pre- pretty funny. I can t- t- tell you some stories from my own life. I was like. You know, people always assume the virus is somewhere else. It's not here, but it's over there. So we need to keep those people out. And how do we decide who has it? Well, you know, is that is it somebody who looks just like me and dresses in a kind of a nice way and smells pretty? Nah, she doesn't have a coronavirus. But what about that sort of sort of sloppy guy over there? You know, it's, it looks a little bit foreign to me, and he doesn't quite speak English. She's probably a disease carrier. You know, that's that's sort of the, what what people do once you start stigmatizing disease and once you start assigning uh, disease to other people. It's always going to be the minorities and and the marginalized who are attacked. And this this happened in nineteen. 19- 18 and uh, pub, public health specials, specialists were, were mortified at the treatment of Chinese immigra- immigrants during the during the pandemic, all of whom were assumed to be uh, carrier- <laughs> carriers of the flu, of course, right? What else are you going to do, you know? Right. I know, this is how it works, you know? We just otherize the virus. Um, it's very grim. Uh, by the way, you could f- find many occasions in the Bible which this is true, too, you know? Yeah. Um, uh, where Jesus has all kinds of encounters with... Uh, lepers um, but it's not clear that they're actually lepers i mean like this one guy simon the leper you know like got you know got a little bit sick 20 years ago or something and they assigned him the title simon the leper and he's like what the hell <laughs> and so he goes to jesus right. and says look everybody calls me simon the leper i'm just simon you know and like, uh, can you can you declare because he's a rabbi can you declare me uh clean and fit to go into the temple you know not sinful in other words sin and disease being always identified an identity in history and jesus said yeah i get it annoying all right you're now simon you know he's like thanks a lot I, you know <laughs> so uh, don't, go, is, don't, don't go telling people that yeah. <laughs> right. so, so this is how we do and and so after 1918 there was a huge push in america among Really interesting sort of, um, I would say it was a progressive era uh, public health specialists who, who you know, despite their uh, progressive politics, you know, were nonetheless earnest about, like, let's not make this mistake again. And then in the 1920s and 1930s, we had huge innovations concerning uh, immunity theory, viruses, herd immunity, uh, you know, the mutation of viruses, how they work, the relationship between our immune systems and vir- and, 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 and then great progress on, on uh, developing a kind of stable scientific, easily to, to easily distribute a smallpox vaccine. So that was, that was a great moment. And so after that, uh, the American media really had been in sync with public health establishment in the United States against ever doing anything like what happened in 1918 again, against lockdowns, against travel restrictions, school closures out of the question, uh, the idea of banning mass events. No, you want mass events. That's what you want. Right, right. And and so there, everybody's united. So in in 1948, the big push again, you know, for the polio vaccine, the polio foundation, which turned into you know the March of Dimes and so on, um, it was really important for the public uh, for the public health establishment in this country to not politicize these viruses, but rather uh, 
assigned the job of disease mitigation to medical professionals. That was a really important priority. So as you know, FDR himself had suffered from polio, but but the new polio foundation, um, uh, which was established, I guess, I don't know, in the mid-1930s, something like that, he asked to be their spokesman and they refused. They said, look, we need to understand that that this is this is about disease. You know, the minute you come in and endorse us, everybody's going to think this is, you know, pro New Deal p- political trick. You know, so they really kept him at arm's length. And during the epidemics of of the late forties and early fifties, where you know polio was was qu- quite wicked. I mean, like when it would strike you, it would, it would strike typically uh, young girls from the ages of like you know nine and twelve, and and maim them for life. It's like talk about heartbreaking, you know. Right. But um, and but there was and and there were outbreaks, you know, as many spots around the country, um, but. Uh, I'm only aware of one case in which something was closed and it was a swimming pool in San Angelo, Texas, um, because there was a belief that it was maybe transmitted through water or something like that, um, which is not quite right. But um, but but it, we remained completely open. Then we had a real challenge in, um, in 1957-58 with the Asian flu, which was really deadly. I mean, we had a population that didn't live past 65 in those days and we were uh, uh, you know had a third of the population numbers that we have today and and uh, 110,000 people died from that very very wicked flu um, but there wasn't you know New York Times had um, going back and looking at it they had one editorial about it and the editorial was stay home if you get sick see your doctor We'll handle this through professional means, and and that's that's it. So just move on with life. They they were really dedicated to not creating panic because panic doesn't do anything. It disrupts society and makes it more difficult to to deal with a, what is a medical problem. And then mm. the same thing happened in '68 and '69 with uh, with the Hong Kong flu, which barely made the headlines, but still killed a hundred thousand people. And we still had Woodstock and so on. And thank God we did. Because that's one of the way, one of the reasons that the Hong Kong flu was not more deadly than it was, we we quickly uh, saw that the best way to deal with a virus is to make it endemic. And that means we need as much exposure to non-vulnerable uh, people as possible. Uh, and it's extraordinary. We used to know this. This, this, I mean, is, this makes so much sense, and and it, it's so frustrating that we're going back to medieval times. It seems like oh well, man. that's. February 27th, New York Times, uh, Donald McNeil, to handle this virus, let's go full medieval. Well, we did. And we abolished dentistry for three months. There was a 70% decline in the people who went to the dentist. We got rid of dentistry in this country. We were, people were ba- banned from hospitals, 350 hospitals in this country, furloughed workers because they had no patients because they had reserved their, uh, their by government mandate, re- reserved all their facilities for coronavirus patients who didn't arrive. And so they were just had to sitting on their hands. So people missed um, vaccinations and, and cancer screenings and, you know, every kind of oh, the, the, the carnage has been awful. Uh, oh, and, and just just to show you how medieval we decided to go. Yeah. Cuomo and de Blasio and New York decided to blame the Hasidic Jews for for being, you know, super spreaders because of their weddings and funerals. I mean that's how that's yeah. how you know. I yeah. mean, it's, oh, that's where we're, we're that's where we're going now. But it's like so the Jews are causing society to get disease. Very very interesting. I mean that's the term poisoned the well. Um, 
is actually an anti-Semitic canard dating from the Middle Ages, where people would always blame Jews for it for any kind of disease outbreaks. Oh, they're poisoning the well. That's what they used to say. And so sure enough, you have de Blasio and Cuomo in New York blaming the, the Hasidim for for the disease outbreaks in New York. And so, you know what, you know what, the, you know what the, the, uh, um, the in, in, infection fatality rate is among Hasidic Jews in New York uh, from coronavirus? What is that? I don't know. Essentially zero. <laughs> and, you know, I, I confront people about this and I said, well, that's because it's a younger population. Well, well yeah. yeah. And, that's, that's right. That, and that's the other thing. I mean, I, I I, my understanding, and, and and again, I'm just a crazy musician. But my understanding is that that you can the only thing that that you can predict on on what how a policy did as far as you know the the um, the deaths and and specifically let's talk specifically about deaths is how it took care of elderly people in nursing homes, and if you did a good job with that, you probably did okay as far as as far as the death rate. If you didn't do a good job of that, you probably had a major spike. Uh, that's that's true. And uh, empirically, uh, you can chart the deaths per capita or deaths per million in each state relative to the percentage of the population that lives in long-term care facilities and see a very – it's like a, a, a visibly statistical uh, – uh, correlation between the two in other words um somewhere like south dakota which you know stayed completely open has you know pretty pretty high deaths per million not super high but you know relatively high compared to um vermont which closed so i've seen people on twitter saying look south dakota stayed open they have high deaths per million vermont stayed close and um they don't have any well there are other explanations i mean the number one is that vermont has the, the is listed on 49th uh, in the in the country, in terms of the the number of long term care facilities they have, uh, it's a relatively young population, and nobody's in nursing homes. Whereas South Dakota has a higher uh, percentage uh, percentage of elderly people in nursing homes. So sometimes, like it's it'd be nice to have perfect capacity to manage these things so that so that nobody ever dies. But unfortunately, um, you know, that's how it works. Uh, yeah, that's nursing homes are 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 yeah. I mean, yeah. So, well, you know, I mean, that's, that's, so it's not about whether you're open or closed. It's really, a, but I tell you something else is very interesting. You mentioned one of the things I, you'd think that we would know how to, how to do is in the case of nursing homes, like don't bring the coronavirus into them. You'd right. think that would just be like a no brainer. Well, Cuomo did and the guy in New Jersey did. And just this morning, the Boston Herald has an article that says they're putting coronavirus patients in nursing homes to prevent hospital overcrowding. You're kidding me. True story. It came out just this morning. It's like, w here we are, month 11 into this, and they're doing the same damn thing again. Like, that... That's criminal. That seems so... That seems criminal to me to do that, because it's it's... For, for as many times as, as one might get yelled at for not wearing a mask in a store, yeah. and it's these same people that are putting people into nursing homes where people are actually dying. Uh, sorry, that's a shock. I, I, I'm speechless with what you well, said. Well, you know, it's, it's a kind of an illustration of 
just the absurdity of these poli- uh, policies that here's another example. I mean, these, these governors just and mayors just doing random things like in New York City, God, a city that's been completely wrecked by this stuff, by the way. But they somehow decided that the virus wasn't going to come out after 10 p.m. I'm just like, just whatever kind of random control you can impose. Well, what that did was, you know, a lot of elderly New Yorkers and they, what the, what society, what the sort of informal system in New York City was, is that elderly people, which is the same, relatively more vulnerable populations, would go to dinner early and have peace and quiet and, you know, some distance between each other and, and uh, eat casually and then, and then leave. And then, uh, that would last till about eight o'clock or something, and then the then uh, younger people come in, and then you know by nine o'clock and ten o'clock is an entirely useful crowd, and they're partying until two three a.m. Well, okay, you shut everything down at ten. Now suddenly you've got everybody crammed in together, you know, thereby making you know from from six to ten, thereby making the older populations actually exposed to people, uh, you know, that they shouldn't be exposed to. I mean, it's like the exact the opposite. Results have, have have come about from a policy that was meant to contain the virus. It's actually, potentially, uh, going to spread it further. You know, among the people who who need to protect. And and okay, and, and this this takes me to, to something I, I wanted to dis- discuss with you, and that is something that that um, I think I think I can fairly say that you helped to facilitate, um, and that's the the Great Barrington Declaration. Um, and I think this is a really important document. It's a really important statement that was made. And, and can you take us through um, maybe a little bit of what that is and, and what that's about? Well, it's, it's, a st- it's a plain statement of cell biology and public health, nothing more than that. And people act like it's some sort of you know, dramatic revelation. It was, it was what everybody knew this time last year, basically. <laughs> you know, that, <laughs> that viruses can't be fully suppressed. That Before we, we got amnesia. <laughs> yeah. Viruses cannot be viruses. You know, we live amongst monk viruses. It's, well, this is the millionth virus we've had in the course of our evolution, and there's going to be another million after. So, um, society must live amidst infectious disease. It's a matter of how you want to deal with it, and the best way to deal with it is by na- maintaining normal social functioning um, and protect uh, the vulnerable populations. And it's a matter of figuring out who they are. We know who they are, and there's ways to deal with it. And otherwise, um, anything else you do is going to create. Um, ghastly costs, costs um, with increased uh, in poverty and uh, uh, hunger and life disruption, despair, suicide, drug overdoses, and so on. And so this is what it pointed out, and then it recommends at the end that we need to let um, all non-vulnerable populations continue um, to uh, main to just go back to regular life, you know, and hold events and go to the movies and go to sports and all the rest of it and keep a profound uh, uh, fixation on, you know, uh, you know, the, making it possible for those people among the vulnerable populations who are worried about the virus to stay away while uh, herd immunity is obtained. And the virus becomes endemic. I mean, that, that was what the statement said. Um, what was remarkable about the statement is that, it was, I guess you could say the timing and the people who made it. And, yes. and, and, and you know, I, I was on an interview yesterday with a guy who was going on about like, crediting me for this. And I really, I said, well, I'll accept your, all your, your compliments uh, on behalf of the people who actually did this. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, 
but then that was three very courageous academics who decided to stick their necks out and just tell what's true. Right. Uh, they didn't have to do that. And they've faced, you know, the terrible attacks on their lives and reputations, you know, as a result of having, to, and that's Martin Kulldorff of Harvard, uh, Jay Bhattacharya of Stanford, and then Sinatra Gupta of Oxford. Um, all three uh, were yeah, these here. These clubs in the world of... <laughs> You know, these are not your normal. I mean, that, that to me, that to me, that the, the credentials of these people, and I looked a little bit into, it, are are incredible, and it should be heard and spoken loudly to the world what these people are saying. Sinatra is the the world's leading epidemiologist, and I don't think many people do disagree with that. She she is really a philosopher of infectious diseases, and um, really it was the grace of my life to spend the weekend with her. I mean, she is just something else. Every just sitting around in the living room and with casual conversation, she drops these truth bombs that just blow my mind. I mean, she she is just something remarkable. What a vision she has. Um, Kuldorf is a, a infectious disease statistician who's been you know probably the leading um, uh, statistician behind it, 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 assessing the effectiveness of various vaccines and 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 how they work and what populations need them and is really heavily involved in the industry and really knows the stuff and has I don't know two hundred papers credited to his name um, and then Jay Bhattacharya is both an MD and a PhD in this case an MD, MD plus a PhD in economics and is a public health specialist so wow <laughs> yeah you know, these people are are mighty but they just got fed up as like in September or something like that you know. I, I dropped Martin a note because I saw him uh, tweeting against lockdowns in a way which I had been. And I dropped a note and I said, why don't you, why don't you come visit us for the weekend? We could all just hang out. And so I invited a couple of attorneys from New York who had similarly become anti-lockdown. And, and the movement really, a movement kind of began to develop at, from that first meeting. And we didn't have any agenda. We just hung out for the weekend. And then it was about two weeks later, he called me up and said, you know, we, we don't have any time uh, to wait. We need to get together. And Martin was very interesting. He said, you know, there's a real problem in the journalistic community that they don't understand anything about viruses and how they work. So what we need to do is bring in, say, three or four or five uh, really high-end people who are in a position to make a difference and teach them about viruses and public health. And I said, well, when are we going to do this? And he, I said, well, but there's, there's time in three weeks. And, and he said, well, it really needs to happen this weekend. <laughs> oh, wow. so, so we scrambled and uh, miraculously got Sinetra over here, and then um, yeah, isn't she in, in England? Yeah, yeah. So that was a that was a real trick to get her here, and then um, and then we got Jay over here, and and uh, we held all the sessions and the, everything's on online. I get I get these emails every day from weird conspiracy theorists that say I need to schedule a time to come and see all your archives about the Great Barrington Declaration to figure out what's really <laughs> as if I've got a box somewhere, you know, that's got all our secrets. So we're we're secretly funded by the by the by the UK Ministry of Defense is one article right. recently claimed it was hilarious. Um, and I just tell the guy, look, I don't know what else can we do. We filmed everything. We put all the films online for, of everything, and uh, we've got a free class questions on the on the website. You can go and read it. I mean, they're ridiculously uh, transparent in terms of all their you know, relationships and everything. So it's like there's nothing else to learn. You know, if I knew it, I would post it. You know, there, right. we, got, we don't have any secrets. Oh. Uh, but anyway, the important thing about that that document is it really did cause a change, a big shift in the the way people were thinking about this. Well, the Great Barrington Declaration gave people who were instinctively against lockdowns 
uh, a language apparatus to understand why they are and what a better alternative would be. So that was a real change. Um, and it gave people courage that, okay, if these people are willing to risk their names and their careers to say something like this, um, maybe I should too. So that was really the birth of the movement. I think that was you know, early October, and things have really accelerated since then. That website has received this. Now, keep in mind, this is not like a big, complicated website. It's, it's, a, it's, a, it's got a front page, uh, 50 translations of the same thing, um, a page of signatures with a map of where the signers are, and a page of, of frequently asked questions. So that's, it's not, you know, we're not talking about the Wall Street Journal. This is just this page with three pages, you know. And it has, since it's released, uh, been viewed 20 million times. Wow. Yeah. That's, and, and I think, I think that's a statement of, um, the starkness, the, the, the difference that people are hearing and what they know that the, there's something not right between what they're hearing. And, and here's this, this light in the darkness saying, no, there's another way that we should think about this whole problem. You know, what's interesting about this is that um, during, well, as the document was being signed, Jay Bhattacharya said to me, this is going to be signed by a million people. And I thought, oh, look, I've been in web development all my life, and I know the way the information age works. I think this is, we're going to be lucky if, if anybody even pays any attention to this thing. So he was right. I was wrong. Um, but what's funny about this is that, you know, the stress has been so extreme with, uh, you know, when you wake up in the morning and you've got 150 emails, you know, from New York Times reporters, The Guardian, The Wall Street Journal, uh, uh, PBS calling, you know, local news, you've got, you know, the mayor. And of remains. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, the town council of Great Barrington, you know, signed, signed a big denunciation. So, oh, wow. Yeah. Yeah. So it's just the whole thing. Just, so anyway, I felt this kind of need to take care of Jay Sinetra and Martin. So I'd call them up every once. I'd say, hey, how are you holding up? And that sort of thing. But they, every time I would do this, they would flip it, out, flip it on me and go, listen. How are you holding up? Are you okay? You know, uh, are you getting through this? Listen, thank you so much for all you've done for us. And I'm like, me, you've done for you. Look what you've done for us. I mean, it's unbelievable. But one of the things that I think that they knew from the beginning, which I did not know, is that there was no question that the world would at some point come around to seeing that they were right. Mm -hmm. They knew this. And the reason, the reason they knew it was because they were just say, stating uh, what everybody knew this time last year, what everybody knew, which is the basics of cell biology and public health principles that you need to consider the whole, not just one, one thing. You need to consider the long term, not just the short term. They made a very plain statement. They all three knew for sure that 2020 was a, a year in which everybody kind of went mad, but that things would get back to normal. People would see what was true and that most everybody, there's always some holdouts, would see that the Great Barrington Declaration was right all along. They've always known this. Yeah, that's, well, and, and that kind of confidence, I think people felt that confidence and they see that, okay, this, this, uh, um, I'm trying to think, uh, there's a statement, Dennis Prager once said that, that, you know, uh, uh, studies either uh, solidify what I innately know is true or they're wrong. <laughs> and I don't know if that's exactly right, but, but I think there is something deep inside us that we know, like what is going on right now is not right. There's, and that um, 
and to have have those kind of credentialed people, um, you know, being able to meet and and share their knowledge so that that it can give us courage. In other words, when 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 people are um, you're talking about the New York Times, and these people that that you're getting emails from all the time. Well, I, and I think on a smaller on a smaller basis, that's what that's what everybody's feeling. Again, when you walk in the store and or when you're talking to your friends on Facebook and 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 it's and it's a constant, you know, um, you know, masks and 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 lockdowns and and um, are you going to kill grandma? I mean, these things are are just ha- have been throughout the this entire ordeal for people. Well, the lies have been overwhelming. For me, that's just what's been so frustrating about it because, you know, you see something that contradicts, you know, the Barrington Declaration out there and it's like, oh, the CDC says that restaurants are going to kill you. And you're like, you know, I think I need to look more carefully at the study. It turns out the entire study is bogus on the face of it and it's easy to refute. You know, this has been going on for a long time or when the New York Times reported the sheer inaccuracy of PCR testing, you know, which was developed for um, for research, not diagnostic purposes. When you see Fauci getting on television saying herd immunity means that 70% have to be in, uh, infected in order to obtain it, whereas in fact, you look at the research, it could be as low as 10% because of shared immunities with SARS-CoV-1 and other coronaviruses and, and, uh, and, and, and T-cell memory. You know, uh, uh, it it's the when you when you see and and Fauci has has played a particularly pernicious role here because he doesn't care about the research he doesn't look at the studies um, he wakes up every day uh, to plan his media appearances and that's all he's been doing all year he, and, and and meanwhile the research is pouring out we now have twenty two studies uh, global studies showing there's no relationship at all between. Uh, uh, disease outcomes and lockdowns, right? So uh, right. it doesn't matter. I mean, just like stay open, close where the virus is going to do what it's going to do. And we have 22 studies. I feel sorry for all these people who had to do all this stuff. And then they drop these studies in peer-reviewed journals and and then Fauci that pays no attention to them whatsoever and still gets on television saying, we know these mitigation strategies work. No, no we don't. That's right. not true. That's just not true. I mean, even the masks are very much in dispute. I mean, it was like I think it was only in March the American the Journal of the American Medical Association had an article on masks and said they do nothing to stop stop the stop the virus. Uh, um, uh, maybe they provide some comfort to healthcare workers if you're wearing them in hospitals and stuff stuff like that. But for the most part, these masks are just what they call talisman. You know, they're just symbols. They don't actually achieve anything. And I at, at American Institute for Economic Research, we ran an article by a chemist who used to work in the PPE industry, and he. It's, it's like, you know, the, vir- the, the the mask has holes the size of your apartment complex and the virus is about, is about the size of the button on your shirt. I mean, this is, you know, this is, this is what we're dealing with here, you know. So the, and, oh, and the social distancing thing, you know, was a complete and utter nonsense made up by a 14-year-old girl in 2006 and her physicist's father turned her fears of cooties into a into an academic paper wow. that in a totalitarian way imagined that he would be in charge of society Isn't that rich? Part. yeah <laughs> we're taking orders from wow um i i know our time is short and uh, and there's, there's another aspect of this uh, that i'd really like you to speak to if you can and and it is a i think a long term maybe short term i don't know but that's the effect of inflation um, I mean, we have seen an additional four trillion dollars being printed out of nothing. 
um, we're seeing riots, which interestingly aren't against the government, but are against capitalism <laughs> in many regards. Um, I mean, we're, we're seeing, and, and I just, I, I imagine, I see this, this, this printing of money, this inflation that's happening. And I just imagine like the black hole of wealth of the world being sucked into the fed. And I, I, I wonder what is your take and, and it, do you see it the same way I do or, or, or is there some other way I should be looking at this? Well, I'll tell you, um, uh, first of all, these these policies of inflating and spending money to fix the economy are ridiculous. You can't you, you can't stimulate something that you've made illegal. Mm. I mean, the lockdowns shut down all essential social and economic functioning. You can't replace that with a bunch of money, uh, just throwing money all over society. You know, I don't I don't know what that means. I mean, it's like. I don't know. I don't, I don't know. It's it's like if you got a guy strapped down, you know, to the ground, and then you keep stuffing his mouth full of steroids and telling him to run. I mean, you've you've got a problem, and that's essentially what all this has done. I mean, the best way to to get out of this economic disaster we're facing, where, where there's been forty five percent increase in in the number of people reported being, you know, very very hungry. I mean, the food the food lines, even in the richest counties in this in this country are around the block. I mean, we, we have done horrible things to ourselves. And yeah, these, these, these policies were increased the debt. And, and if you want to really scare yourself, you can go to the Federal Reserve Bank St. Louis uh, data service called FRED and look up M1 and M2 and see, you know, uh, astonishing increases and, you know, flow the data by percentage of increase relative to the past. And you will see things that make it look like we're about to become the new Weimar, you know? Um, right. The only thing about that, and I, I'm not a monetary economist, but I do work with him. I talked to um, uh, Thomas Hogan here, who's a real specialist in this area. And he said, you know, those charts are, are telling what's true, but those are the, those are, the reserves are being poured into the banks, and the banks are, for the most part, keeping them on deposit with the Federal Reserve because the Federal Reserve pays them still uh, more uh, to hold them rather than to lend them. So there is a disincentive to you know turn these uh, these increases in, into hot money on the street. You know, right. so there's probably not a grave danger of catastrophic cataclysmic results from what appears to be uh, unprecedented and it is kind of unprecedented but he thinks that that because of the structure of the banking system and and this relationship with the fed that they're kind of doing right now uh they're repeating what they did in 2008 um so which and which which similarly saw a huge increase in the money supply it, it it distorts the markets but it 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 may not result in in the sort of the death death of the dollar scenarios it, a lot depends on what the fed does in 2021 okay that's 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 fair enough and i appreciate that that perspective um again this is and if love remains or we're talking to um jeffrey tucker um who is uh, the editor, editorial director for the American Institute for Economic Research. Um, his latest book is Liberty or Lockdown. Um, I have really thoroughly enjoyed the conversation, um, Jeffrey. I, it's been a, a pleasure. It, it, let me ask you this. Other than reading your book, and I encourage everyone to go and, and get your book and read it, um, and, and looking at the Great Barrington uh, Declaration, um, what, what, what would you recommend people, what can they do that, that – um, you know, what, what, what would you recommend that they do as far as um, living their daily lives, um, you know, 
what 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 would you say people ought to do in this? Well, time? I would say uh, your first obligation is not to be a, a, a selfish and moral bastard, and <laughs> <laughs> by which I mean. Uh, don't think you're doing the world a favor by uh, being in your snuggly clothes on the sofa watching uh, binging Netflix. That is not doing any good for anybody. Um, you need to get out there uh, and be a little more um, uh, courageous and don't be afraid of this virus. You know, and and uh, for for if you're if you're young and you're healthy, and by that I mean, really, I mean healthy. You know, because. The, the difference between severe outcomes and nothing on this virus really comes down to the strength of your immune system. So, um, and, and stop making bogus excuses for yourself. I mean, I, I've heard this nonsense. Well, I've got a great my grandmother, you know, I've been immunocompromised because I was bit by a tick 20 years ago. You name it. You know, people make the biggest excuses for, for, for behaving like a lazy member of the ruling class and forcing the workers and peasants to bear the burden of disease. I think that's, I think that's wrong. So get out there. Don't be afraid. Uh, don't let anybody intimidate you. Uh, so that's one thing. The the second thing is, I think this is a time for speaking out. And and I have so one of the things I get every day is a Google alert for the Great Branton Declaration. And one of the things that's kind of strangely impressed me. Uh, we used to talk about letters to the editor back in the old days. They used to, everybody would talk about writing a letter to the editor of the local newspaper. Um, and somehow we think in the age of you know, mass media communication and stuff, that doesn't really matter. Actually, people have been taking to writing letters to a local newspaper with, with signed by their names so that their community will read it and citing the Great Barrington Declaration and condemning lockdowns. And I've seen more and more and more of these, and I, I believe that does some good. I mean, we are turning the corner um, on, on, on public opinion on this. People are fed up, and they need people to stand up and, and point uh, to a better way. Uh, the other thing... Um, is that, you know, if I can just kind of do a little bit of a push for American Institute for Economic Research, we were founded in the midst of a crisis in 1933, and we've always stuck our neck out when it really mattered, and we did it this year. You know, our first article on the coronavirus was January 27th, and we've been saying the same thing. From then to now, which is the way to manage the disease is to manage the disease, not put the politicians and bureaucrats in charge of it and disable society. So, And we've probably run 700 articles on the topic by now. Um, so... Uh, subscribe to our daily email um, and you'll get the, our best research on the topic. Uh, the other thing you might consider is, you know, maybe, I mean, it helps our employees um, here to know that we have public support. And that comes through not just from clicks, but people willing to throw us, you know, 50 bucks at the year, end of the year. I mean, it means a lot to us, you know, that we're on track because we've, we've, we've faced the slings and arrows, I tell you, this year for this position we've taken. We've, we haven't been entirely alone, but a lot of times it felt that way. Um, so it's, a, you know, I think, I think, you know, AIR would welcome public support. I, thank you. Yes, absolutely. So if um, you can find that at AIER.org, um, go check out the American Institute for Economic Research. Yes. And, and yeah, throw them throw them some some donations if, if you're able to. I think it's this kind of work it, that it's those dollars go to a huge way of, of um, uh, getting the word out and getting these getting these ideas out in the open more so I appreciate you saying that um, 
and yeah, this, little, this definitely live our lives a little more freely, a little more openly. Let's have a little more courage. Ah, good, good words there. Jeffrey A. Tucker, I, I sincerely appreciate your time with, with us here at And of Love Remains. Thank you for being on the show. Mike, you're a wonderful interviewer, and I've really enjoyed my time. It went by like just minutes, so I'm really grateful to you. Thank you for having me. My pleasure, my pleasure. This is And If Love Remains.